Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Live from the studios of WNPR, but not really because I'm in my house. And why am I talking that way? This is actually our fanfare, our election fanfare. Uh, it's not a good fanfare, but we don't mean for it to be. But this is our pre-election What Could Happen show. Tomorrow we will do our What Is Happening show. <laughs> and I don't know why that little phrase is repeating all the time. But uh, we will do our What Is Happening show. And then, of course, Wednesday, hopefully we'll be able to do our What Did Happen show. All right, so... You can fade that thing, Kat. It's just like doing the same thing over and over again. Okay, so so welcome. And what we're going to do here today is we're, we're going to have a guest right at the beginning just to sort of set the stage a little bit, but we really do want to rely heavily on your phone calls. So um, I'll give the number in just a second. So I was talking to a Republican friend of mine, somebody really steeped in politics and history, and he unenthusiastically said that, you know, if there isn't a solid, clear victory uh, on Tuesday or in just the scant days that follow for one side or the other, uh, but especially if it seems like the edge is to candidate Biden, that the Trump operations to alter the vote count, to uh to, to besiege places where votes are being counted would, in his words, make the Brooks Brothers riot look like a bake sale. The Brooks Brothers riot took place in Miami-Dade County in 2000. So today on the show, we're going to be talking about this and other possibilities. As I said, mainly with you callers at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-9677. Uh, yesterday's raucous, disruptive, and in some places armed convoys were a foretaste of that idea, that possibility that uh, Trump operatives and, and Trump adherents will take to the roads and to the office buildings uh, after the election if they are not happy. In the best case scenario, Biden gets a very early decisive victory, especially in Florida, but also Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona. These are all potentially early reporting uh, states, even though Trump will never concede. There's probably enough latent institutional strength in this country, although we're going to talk about that with our guest, so that the proper electors could be seated in December and the actual winner would be certified and then inaugurated. But in these other scenarios in which the strength and elasticity of these institutions will be tested against the nihilistic willingness on the part of Trump followers to disrupt, to, to disrupt, and that has been a very characteristic aspect of the Trump tenure, we've got a different kind of scenario and one that really could test our institutions. All right, so I'll stop babbling and tell you that our guest right now is Alan Greenblatt, a senior staff writer covering politics and policy issues for Governing Magazine. His work has been published in The New Republic, Vox, and American Conservative, among other publications. Uh, welcome, Alan Greenblatt. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm sort of regretting I'm not on tomorrow for the What's Happening show, because I always kind of <laughs> liked that TV show in the old days. <laughs> there you go. Well, who knows? You might be back tomorrow. Uh, anything can happen, as they used to say on the Musket Musketeers Club. Uh, all right, so... Um, 
Yeah, maybe just we should begin by saying that, you know, when we when we talk about government, when we think just sort of in a vague, eyes closed way about government, we don't really think about election administration all that often. We think about other aspects of government, partly because elections happen only occasionally and partly because we, I think, for the most part, just assume in most cycles, that elections are going to work okay. You know, that, yeah, there might be a problem with some absentee ballots somewhere or too long a line that has to be cut off too early. Or we know that things can go wrong. And, and 2000 taught us things can get really complicated. But Alan, I think maybe most of the time, uh, election administration is something we take for granted and maybe we should pay more attention. Well, uh, yeah, that's always an issue because it's something that we use a couple times a year, every other year. I mean, others, you know, some states have elections more frequently, but anyway, it is a very occasional thing. Um, and uh, so, you know, we have uh, a system that relies heavily on volunteers this year. You know, typically most poll workers are retirees because it's an all day thing on a Tuesday uh, with COVID. They're having a harder time. You know, the younger people seem to have stepped up for that. But anyway, you know, they run... We have a very fragmented system where each state sets separate rules or laws for elections, and then they're handled by counties, and the, the, the amount of resources that they have varies a lot. And so the big concern, you know, in recent years has been cybersecurity, and especially after 2016. Now this year we have actual security where it is a real issue how much uh, violence and intimidation we might see uh, on election day and, and as you suggest, following election day. Right. And, you know, I think before we talk about all the things that can go wrong, we should, I think, tip our hats to the people who run elections. I mean, you know, the notion that 90 million votes would be in, you know, a day or two before election day, the notion that the number of people who've been able to vote in Texas is essentially equal to the entire number of people who voted overall in 2016. Here in Connecticut, where we don't have early voting, nonetheless, 25% of registered voters have managed to get their ballots in uh, already. I mean, in a way, what pe these people have done is kind of amazing in terms of the scale up to, to early voting, Alan. Yeah, it's a huge difference. Uh, four years ago, 47 million people voted early and we're going to pass 100 million today. And uh, Texas is actually it's 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 more more people already voted in Texas than voted in all of 2016. Um, and same with Hawaii and in some other states, you know, are, are close. Uh, and they had to do this with lots, you know, there are five states that already had all male voting before this year and more states joined this. California is doing basically all male voting this year and lots of other states are doing much more male. So it's, you know, we're going to see tomorrow how well they did. Yeah, they do deserve praise for uh, 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 building the airplane and flying at the same time. And then we'll see tomorrow how well it lands because there is this big difference. It'll be part of the suspense tomorrow, potential suspense tomorrow. We may not have much suspense tomorrow. You know, Florida, most states, in fact, uh, are already counting the uh, absentee and early votes. Some states are not allowed to. It varies by state. You know, can they open the ballots? Can they process them so they can be counted? Can they count? You know, there's tremendous variation. Most states, though, allow them to prepare. So with Florida and North Carolina, we should know right away what the early voting totals are, which will be a huge part of the overall vote. Uh, and then Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are, are the ones we might be 
waiting on, or we will be waiting on for final counts. They're not allowed to open things till tomorrow. So, you know, this all happens against a, a backdrop of contention. And inconveniently, the 2020 presidential election will be the first one in 40 years to take place without a federal judge uh, having that uh, famous consent order that requires Republican uh, National Committee to seek approval in advance for ballot security operations, as they are called at the polls or Edo Election Day operations. So the thing that we'll be looking at tomorrow will be probably both sides, uh, but certainly pretty openly based on everything that's been said so far, in particular, Republican operatives at the polls looking for ways to disqualify voters, suppress the vote. I mean, I, I, I know we want to be even handed here, but I, I don't think it's any secret that the Republican strategy involves fewer people voting and the Democrats typically want more people to vote. So, uh, so Alan, this is just sort of another thing that election administrators have had to prepare for, right? Yeah, it's really sad, actually. You know, we, we've had an uptick in violence in our politics in the last few years with this uh, during this presidency. And I find, you know, it's one of those things where people always say, well, but what about the other side? Because, you know, the people on the right believe that uh, Antifa is destroying the cities and, and, and people on the left say, you know, there's, there's this um, Trump factor. Um, heading into tomorrow. So the consent decree, we should explain to people, back in 1981, there was a close race for governor in New Jersey, and the Republican National Committee hired about 250 uh, armed so-called poll watchers to intimidate people. They were, uh, you know, almost all in black and Hispanic neighborhoods in the cities in New Jersey. It was a very close race, and the Republican won. And it was so blatant. And, you know, things like this have happened through our history, go through the whole, you know, the, the, the Jim Crow era, et cetera, in, in the South. Um, on up to the civil rights era. But um, that consent decree in 1982 barred Republicans from targeting minorities and, and, and um, you know, using um, basically armed forces to, uh, to, to work the polling places. So uh, pretty much all over the country, both parties and individual candidates can send people to watch the polls to make sure things are being done right, but they're supposed to be certified. So we'll probably have some combination of non-certified poll watchers, you know, just random people. We've seen this all year with the protests that so-called militias have showed up uh, to intimidate people. There have been, you know, incidents of tear gases. There's tear gassing. There's There have been um, shots fired in, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse is kind of the most famous case, the teenager who drove up from Illinois to Wisconsin to a protest in Kenosha and uh, allegedly killed two people. Uh, the right will tell you he was acting in self-defense. But anyway, we were already keyed up. And, you know, this weekend we saw uh, people driving pickups and other vehicles with Trump flags, uh, you know, uh, circling a bus, a Biden campaign bus in Texas and blocking traffic on the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey and, and in several other states as well. So, you know, it, it seems clear that there is going to be a confrontational um, attitude and it's it's a tough uh, balancing act not just for election officials but I can tell you that state attorneys general mayors anyone you can name they know this is coming they're prepping for it we've probably all seen the pictures of downtown shops that have been boarded up in in a lot of cities uh, but the 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 different state and local law enforcement agencies are working together so that they typically don't want to have armed 
um, officers at polling places because there's an intimidation factor. We saw in North Carolina this weekend, um, sheriff's deputies tear gassing protesters. So they want to keep the law enforcement away if they can, but they want them on rapid response. So in lots of cities, the police or sheriff are ready to go. They've worked out these uh, systems so that uh, an election judge who might be, you know, just a volunteer knows who to call and that their call goes through right away. And it's going to be a very quick 911 type situation. And then we'll see if they're able to de-escalate situations. But, you know, the attorney general in Michigan tried to ban open carry um, from the polling places there and, you know, lost, lost in court. Right. So, um, first of all, we don't want to scare people away from that. You, you vote here if you're listening to the show in Connecticut and go to the polls tomorrow if you haven't voted absentee. I, I don't think you're going to run into a lot of that kind of stuff. And we certainly wouldn't want you to uh, to not go vote because you're, you're worried you're going to run into that kind of thing. I did, Alan, yesterday uh, watching this stuff happen and these these convoys and caravans, they were happening in places like Brattleboro, Vermont and Northampton, Massachusetts and here around Connecticut where they're just, you know, there aren't a lot of electoral votes available to Donald Trump. Uh, but, you know, thinking about any of them, I'm just sort of wondering, I mean, if I were a swing voter, if I were a not fully persuaded possible convertible voter, I don't think I would be sitting there going, wow, the people causing this traffic jam and causing me to be 30 minutes late. I, I want to get involved with I want to vote for the candidate they like. Um, it, it just <laughs> seemed like a very good strategy unless, Alan, it's really more a flexing of the kind of thing you were talking about before, just kind of saying, yes, we know how to get on the road and make some noise. And we know if we're not happy on Wednesday morning, we know what we're going to do about it. And I wondered if that was maybe part of what we saw over the weekend. Well, everybody's keyed up um, for one thing, but you know, to the extent there's a strategy, you're not, yeah, it's not trying to uh, woo uh, persuadable voters. And I, you know, you're, you're right to say that voting is going to be safe almost everywhere and uh, both in terms of COVID and, and uh, violence. Um, if you lived in uh, certain precincts in Miami and Philadelphia, it might be a different story. We'll see. Uh, but it's going to be isolated incidents. Um, hopefully none are, are serious or even tragic. Um, but the basic point is, I think it's sowing doubt in chaos because um, it, this this may be, you know, President Trump has openly said he's 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 thinking the Supreme Court may hand him the election if it's possible because there is a scenario where uh, enough states come in for him and it comes down to Pennsylvania, which won't be able to count its ballots till tomorrow, and they won't have a result until Friday, and so um, if uh, you know, more more Democrats have voted earlier by mail than Republicans. More Republicans are going to vote tomorrow. So the election day return in Pennsylvania may show Trump with a big lead. Um, and if he's able to somehow get a court to agree to stop counting ballots, um, th that seems to be uh, part of a long shot legal strategy in the end. And this atmosphere of chaos, um, you know, you, you, you see paranoid things that um, that he's going to excuse to bring in the military and there's, they're already bringing the national guard to be in around the white house. It's creating a whole atmosphere of fear, which is intimidating. Just the idea of it, the fact we're talking about it can be intimidating for people. And, um, you know, I, I don't think things are going to spiral out of control. A lot of my friends actually are very nervous about this, that we're in for some kind of, you know, real hostility. But as I said earlier, you know, through this whole protest season, the whole George Floyd protest, we've seen, 
armed um, people from the right show up at these protests, you know, uh, saying they're going to protect private property and things like that. There, there is a the atmosphere of confrontation that has been so much part of our politics is now spilling into actual physical confrontation. You know, Twitter is becoming real life with this hostility. Uh, and like I say, hopefully nothing too serious happens as a result. I, I do think that in the aftermath of Tuesday, I mean, obviously there are a bunch of possible scenarios and probably, you know, the highest probability, if we're going to believe the polls uh, and even sort of stuff on the ground is that, you know, Joe Biden is going to win. He's probably going to win pretty decisively. It could be possible that some of these states that habitually are able to process, uh, as you were saying before, uh, mail votes, uh, places like Florida in particular. Florida could be a very decisive state, but also other early reporters, Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona. You know, I mean, if you ran the table on those four, you're starting to see a pretty clear lead build. You know, there are other things that could happen. There's still a path to victory, obviously, for President Trump. Um, there's also the possibility that for days and weeks, we won't exactly know what has happened because things were so close. But I feel like almost in any of those scenarios, including a Biden victory, which would require a concession from President Trump, something that has happened formally and promptly for the most part since William Jennings Bryan uh, conceded to, to McKinley, um, you know, that President Trump just kind of seems like the person who's not going to concede that that all of the institutions that we depend on, ranging from things that are not written down anywhere, like conceding, to things that are written down there in terms of, you know, how we determine electors, uh, how each state legislature certifies the vote and determines the electors who will uh, certify the results of the election, that these institutions will be put under an un enormous amount of stress uh, if, in fact, President Trump is, is not happy with the outcome and wants to push back at it. And I, I barely know the question I'm asking you, but I guess as somebody who really studies government, you must think about this. To what degree are these institutions robust enough to, to withstand the challenge of somebody who pretty clearly doesn't believe in or particularly respect a lot of institutions and norms of governing? So um, first of all, Trump doesn't have to concede ever. That is not a legal requirement. Right. Uh, you know, if he doesn't have the votes, he won't have the votes. The Electoral College will meet and uh, those votes will be counted. So assuming that happens, you know, even if President Trump is holding a victory rally on the White House lawn on the morning of January 20th, uh, he'll still be gone. Um, he doesn't have to attend Biden swearing in. None of those things have to happen. And, you know, people have been anxious about this for a long time that what if he doesn't leave? And it, that is just not a realistic scenario. There's not going to be a military support for a coup, which is basically what you're talking about. Um, when the votes are counted, uh, if he lost, he lost and, you know, just changing the locks on the Oval Office door will not keep him in power. Uh, obviously it would be better for the country if he concedes, you know, as Al Gore did a month after the, the Florida, in, into the Florida recount once I was stopped, you know, it does calm, the, the, the temperature and, you know, it's, it's, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, this Trump has been criticized for the whole stand back and stand by comment in the debate to the proud boys and other right wing militias and so forth. We'll see what happens. I mean, I, I think if it's a decisive enough victory, people will recognize what happened. And, you know, it's worth noting, I think last year in Kentucky, they had an election for governor 
And it was a Republican incumbent who, um, who named Matt Bevin, who barely lost by about 1%. And he claimed there was election irregularities and so forth and so on, but he had no evidence. He had a news conference. He still had no evidence about it the next day. And then all the Republican politicians in the state said, look, you lost, you have to get off the stage. I don't know whether we will see that. I don't know if we'll see Mitch McConnell or other top Republicans tell Trump, you need to concede for the good of the country. But regardless, Biden will be um, sworn in. And so the question, you know, I, I feel like part part of the temperature right now is COVID, you know, our anxiety levels are high to begin with. We do have a president who has not been constrained by institutions throughout his time in office, including impeachment. So so there's this feeling like somehow the voting system is going to fail us. You know, he, he squeaked in. He wasn't supposed to win last time, and he did. What if it happens again? Or what if he loses? And he's, you know, will our institutions stand up? I guess I have pretty good faith in, in the voting system that when, 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 you know, when 160 million people have their vote, uh, I, I guess I still believe that the system will work, that it's decentralized enough that, and it's run by states, which the president doesn't control. I mean, just the mechanics of it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see him being able to uh, keep in office if he loses. I don't think I've ever been so hopeful that one of my guests is correct. Uh, I really hope that you're absolutely right about this. By the way, we're talking right now to Alan Greenblatt, a senior staff writer covering politics and policy issue for Governing Magazine. Later in the show, I'll be taking your calls. Jot down the number now. It's 888-720-9677. I believe that works out to 888-720-WNPR. So, Alan, uh, even though I'm very hopeful that you're right, let me just sort of run at least one scenario at you, because it seems to me, you know, there's many a slip between the cup and the lip. Well, there's a, a long distance from the beginning of vote counting tomorrow and Wednesday. Uh, and uh, I think it's December 14th, which is when uh, elec electors have to be certified. And state legislatures play a big role in that. And I guess the one of the things that I wonder about, and, and maybe your answer is just the same as the one that you gave, you just gave me, but imagine a situation where President Trump and other Republican leaders start pressuring, let's say, the Pennsylvania state legislature to certify different electors to, you know, uh, let's say that, that the count is a little bit in doubt. Not every ballot has been counted or there's a lot of sort of Florida 2000 type uh, chaos going on. I mean, isn't I'm not I don't want people to be any more worried than they already are. But but I do wonder if, if there are things that can go wrong, particularly between Election Day and December 14th. Uh, yes. <laughs> Short answer is yes. Um, so, you know, if, if we had a situation like Florida 20 years ago, where it came down to one state, those, uh, I, I, I believe Trump would prevail. I think this Supreme court has signaled, uh, that they're willing to put the thumb on the scale for him if it's close. And, um, it, just in some of the recent, uh, late election decisions the past couple of weeks, um, and there has been this scenario floated that uh, Pennsylvania has a Republican-controlled legislature. If they don't like the results, will they put up their own uh, slate of electors? Um, so first of all, they have a Democratic governor there, so they'd have to change the law to do that. So that is not going to happen. And in most states, well, in fact, in those state legislatures actually have nothing to do with the, elector, the, the electors 
um, it's the secretary of state in most states or another top election official who certifies results. So we have this controversy now where Trump and some Republicans are saying only we should only uh, count votes on election day itself. And, we, and election night, of course, is just a broadcasting um, <laughs> trick that we, that we know. It's it, uh, People have commented, you know, several of the last recent elections, we did not know on Tuesday night who, who was the winner. Um, so that's not unusual. And then most states have two weeks or three weeks to certify the results, which usually is well after election day, first of all, so they can get the count right, do a recount if necessary, to count military ballots, which come in for, from overseas, which usually have a later later deadline for receipt or sometimes do. Anyway, so <clears throat> if it comes down to a scenario where there's one state, yes, I think there will there will certainly be litigation and you know Trump will will likely prevail. But it's much more likely that Biden wins comfortably. You know, there are a lot of states where it's super close right now, uh, uh, mainly in Southeast Georgia, Florida. Texas could all go either way. There are a lot of scenarios you could spin where Biden gets 400 electoral votes. There are ones where you could spin where he gets 290. But there's, you know, assuming the polls are at all accurate, we could talk about that if you want. There's almost no scenario where Trump gets close enough to 270 that changing the results in a single state is going to is going to make a difference. Right. So and, and that's what you said is really important. And it's really important for us in, as journalists, too. I mean, I'm going to have less of an election night rule this year than I have in, I don't know, you know, eight cycles or something. It's, just because there's not that much to report from Connecticut and we're just going to stay with national stuff a lot. But, you know, you're right that election night is kind of a fiction uh, that broadcasters do. And, and then we make it worse by saying, well, with 3% of precincts reporting in, you know, Vermont, <laughs> I mean, you know, we make it worse even than it would have to be. And, and people in Connecticut just should just remember that in uh, 2010, it took a really long time to certify the results of that election. Malloy and Foley were very close in the gubernatorial race. And at one point, the then Secretary of State, State Susan Beisowitz, kind of indicated just sort of informally that the election had gone for Malloy. But my recollection was that that wasn't true certification. It took a long time to figure that out. And we should just be clear with everybody. It's going to, it might take us a long time to, to figure things out. That doesn't mean that it's not a clean, clear, decisive vote. It just means that it takes longer than we've led people to to expect in the past um, in, in order to figure things out. And it, it and those overseas military votes are such a great example of you know what has to come in before you can do that. All right, before we lose Alan, I, let me just grab one uh, caller here. This is Jack in Middleton who has a question, uh, except that he might have actually hung up. Jack, are you there? All right. Yeah, no. So we'll we actually will we'll come back to the phone calls here. Well, listen, Alan Greenblatt, great to talk to you. I don't know. Do you have one last inspiring or otherwise important word to say before we take a break? Yes. You know, sometimes planes crash, but they haven't for a decade. And, you know, for all the fear and anxiety, I think by the end of the week, the media narrative is going to shift from these worst case scenarios to lots of stories about how Trump's loss was inevitable all along. And, you know, that that things I, I, I'm pretty confident things are going to be a lot calmer in the end than, than we're talking about right now. Uh, from your lips to God's ears or whoever's in charge of all this stuff. Uh, Alan Greenblatt, senior staff writer covering politics and policy issues for Governing Magazine. Uh, you've been great, Alan. Thanks so much for your help today. 
Oh, pleasure. Thank you. Meanwhile, the rest of you can get online. Kurt from West Haven is going to be our next caller. Listeners can call 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. What are you worrying about? Or what are you not worrying about? Or, or something else? What are you confident about? All right, we're back. This is Colin. Uh, I'm uh, here to help any way I can. Uh, I'll, I'll just say this before we go to Kurt in West Haven, and I'll give out the number again, by the way, which is, I mean, this is all you and me from here on in, just callers, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Um, you know, I love Election Day. I mean, I really love Election Day. And, and I love election night, and I've always loved working as a journalist on election night, and I've certainly been through some memorable ones now, both here in Connecticut and nationally. I, I just I don't feel that way this year. I mean, I'm mostly just worried for all of the reasons that we're talking about. Um, uh, I'll be glad when this is over, uh, and, and I hope I'm even gladder when it's over because of how it comes out. Uh, all right, here's uh, Kurt in West Haven. Hi, Kurt. You're on the air. Uh, good afternoon. Um, I just for perspective for your listeners, uh, may I suggest they might read uh, uh, Alternative History by uh, Howard Waldrop or particularly Harold Turtlelove, uh, where just such scenarios do come to pass in his writings. Uh, that's my comment. And my question is, uh, what do we actually do if the country does erupt? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it does depend on what we mean by erupt. Um, and it's kind of what I was trying to explore with Alan a little bit, too. You know, we depend on our institutions of government, and those institutions range from uh, election administration to elected representatives in Congress and state legislators to governors uh, to judges. Uh, what we hope is, and, and I guess would throw in there military leaders, too. I mean, hopefully there's no particular reason for military leaders to get involved. But we do know that military leaders have, at times, been a little bit alarmed by some of President Trump's rhetoric. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know whether the Joint Chiefs have to go in there and have a talk with him. We also, I think, depend, and, and I think Alan was kind of hinting at this a little bit, uh, talking about the Kentucky example. Or You know, you can go back to... Um, to uh, Nixon, when at a certain point, uh, Republican leaders like Hugh Scott and Barry Goldwater and people, they just had to go to the White House and say, look, this is this is over. You got to get out of here. Uh, you know, we can't support you. You kind of hope that that will happen uh, in this environment, too, that Republican leaders will kind of tr try to quell any kind of Republican stoked uh, in uh, violence or mayhem or or resistance to a, a legal election. But, you know, I don't think anybody knows the answer to your question, Kurt, because uh, so much of it depends on what kind of eruption we have and what it takes. I, I think local sheriffs and police can deal with small kinds of eruptions at the polls uh, or post polls, you know. But, you know, if it really got widespread, if people really took up arms, uh, I don't think we know the answer to that question. So I don't know. Do you know the answer to that question? I certainly don't. All right. Well, that's the best I can do. My 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 qu answer to the question is another question, which is we have institutions in this country. Uh, 
You know, we have institutions that look out after our democracy. And we have people who've served very long tenures in a lot of those institutions. And we have to hope and believe that they care enough about those institutions, care enough about the, the, the latent power uh, of government in America, uh, of legitimate government in America, that, that they will help us get through this and that they will curb the worst of the excesses. But it's a hope rather than a guarantee. All right. Uh, we've been trying to make contact with Jack from Middletown for some time. I think we have him now. Hi, Jack. Hi. How are you? Good. I uh, am very curious about a... I heard a local AM radio commentator say that in my state of Connecticut that it's illegal to wear a piece of clothing with a let's say a MAGA hat or a Biden hat within a certain, at the polling station. Is that true? And is that nationwide? Unlike, um, uh, unlike many things you hear on AM talk radio, that is true. In other words, you can't wear campaign merchandise past the 70 foot limit at the polls. You can't go in to vote wearing a, a piece of clothing that touts one candidate o over another. Uh, so there's, you know, there's that 75 foot limit. That's where you see those people, you know, every cycle you see people poll standing is what it's called. So you've got people there holding signs, wearing t-shirts and stuff like that. And they're standing right at the legal limit of how close they can get. They can't go another foot. Uh, and uh, beyond that, no, you can't do that. Okay, so is that nationwide or I believe it's, I believe it's nation that? nationwide. I mean, I've only ever covered that issue here in Connecticut. I believe it's nationwide, but I I couldn't swear to it. But I I can tell you, yes, can't wear your MAGA hat, can't wear your Biden hat, not into the polling place. And you can wear it up to that seventy five foot limit. It's a good rule, not a bad rule. All right. No, I I agree. It's, I agree. It's a good rule, but I'm worried about people doing it anyway. You know. Well, you know, yes, we're worried about people doing all kinds of things that they probably shouldn't do. We have to hope that they don't do it. But I mean, that's something that can come up in any year and does come up in years. And the poll workers are usually pretty good at just sort of saying, I'm sorry, you have to remove that or go away and put on another shirt or something. Uh, all right. Uh, let's go to Alex in uh, Naugatuck. Hi, Alex. You're on the air. Uh, this is Dan from Naugatuck. Oh, I'll take. Uh, it says, uh, do you mind if I call you Alex though, just to keep everything consistent? No, you're Dan. I, I, I you're Dan. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Hi, Colin. I'm a big fan. Um, I had a question for you as someone who's covered uh, politics for a while now. What do you? Can you speak to the validity of the polling that we're seeing? Because in 2016, uh, myself and a lot of other liberals felt like Hillary had it in the bag, and it feels like we're talking about that all over again. And I'm just worried that we may be in the same blunder. Okay, yeah, let me talk a little bit about that. It's a really great question, first of all, and thank you for it. So some differences in this cycle from the last cycle. One of the biggest problem we had in the last cycle, as far as polls go, is that, you know, there were a lot of really good national polls, but not a lot of really good state polls. And the state polling is better, tighter, and more comprehensive this time, which is not to say, I mean, a poll, and we've done shows about this in the past, a poll is a snapshot, you know, more than it is a predictive tool. So, um, you know, a poll tells you at a given moment what people are saying or thinking about a particular idea in a particular place or a particular choice in a particular place. And so it's kind of a mistake to say, oh, well, the polls say that this is going to happen. Therefore, it is. 
And, you know, even 538, which has been, you know, pretty bullish uh, on Biden, you know, they give Trump somewhere around a 10 percent chance uh, to win. Uh, things that can happen one out of every 10 times happen. I don't know if you saw the opening to Saturday Night Live. They had a guy, one of their uh, actors was pretending to be Nate Silver of 538 talking about how, I mean, he had the numbers a little bit differently. He said it's the chance of rolling a one on any uh, on a dice or a die, I guess. And uh, and then he continues to roll a series of ones. Um, so, you know, things that are less likely to happen still happen. And certainly there's a path for Trump to win this election. So, you know, it really is more it's a snapshot and it's a way of thinking about things. Now, having introduced all those qualifiers, let me just say the polling is uh, stronger and better done this time. We have much better polling in swing states than we've had in the past. Uh, Biden's lead uh, in those polls is better, bigger, uh, more solid than what Hillary Clinton had in 2016. So, you know, yeah, you're right to have some PTSD about this. Uh, You'd also be right if you were a little more confident uh, than you, than maybe people should have been in 2016. Uh, and, and if, if assuming that you want Biden to win anyway. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I could talk about polls for like three hours, but, uh, no one would want to listen to that. But, um, you know, that's what I would say that the polls show us more this time. There was a big mistake in 2016 that just the good polls didn't go into the specific states. So we just didn't really have, you know, very clear pictures of like places like Wisconsin, you know, we're just kind of under polled and, and not pulled by, uh, by good firms. I'll say one more thing. And then there's a bunch of other callers. So I want to get to them, which is that the other thing you should understand is there will always be outlier polls. So you may have heard, you know, Ann Seltzer, who's a great pollster with the Des Moines Register, you know, she's got uh, Trump way up uh, in Iowa, in a way that's just kind of out of line with all the other polling, not just in Iowa, but all the comparable kinds of polling. That shouldn't freak people out either. It's actually good when pollsters have outlier results and still publish them. They say, look, you know, we don't, I know this doesn't sort of correspond very well to everything else, but here's what I'm seeing. You know, that shouldn't scare people either. That outlier polls happen as well. So I don't know. Was that any help, Al? Uh, Dan, 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 was that any help? Yeah, it was. Yeah, just one quick follow-up. Yeah. The conservative uh, news networks, the polls that they're running that show Trump ahead, is there any validity to those? Are those outliers, or are they just sort of not realistic? Depends on the poll. So, for example, a lot of people are citing Trafalgar. Uh, Trafalgar is a private polling company. They uh, um, Their claim to fame is that they call 2016 very accurately, right down to almost the last electoral vote. They just kind of nailed it. Now, they all of uh, polls are, you know, polls aren't just sort of a one-to-one mapping of uh, calls or, you know, solicitations and responses. They are weighted. Uh, they involve all kinds of calculations about sort of other outside factors and, and expectations of certain groups of people turning out more or less than other groups of people. One of the things that Trafalgar operates on is the belief in the shy Trump voters that, that in fact, Trump voters underreport themselves in polls because they think, particularly if it's a phone poll, they're embarrassed to tell a, a, a phone poller that they're Trump voters. So, you know, I mean, you know, sitting underneath all kinds of polls are various kinds of working theories. If you go to 538, uh, they have a kind of grid of all the polls, which they grade. They talk about the lean in these polls. And, you know, polls ultimately have to be tested by one thing. Are they, how often are they accurate? How often are they close to accurate? 
Um, and uh, once again, at 530, it's a pretty good resource just to get a set, kind of sense of who has typically been pretty accurate uh, about stuff. All right, we got to grab a break here. Thanks, Dan. Uh, sorry you were temporarily Alex, but there's another Alex who's very excited about his chance. He'll be with us as well as other people when we get back. And we're back. Thanks to Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio making things uh, work out just great. Uh, Betsy Kaplan is uh, reviving her skills as a call screener here. She's the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, producer of this episode as well. You can get in on the conversation. It's triple eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. That's eight 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 seven two zero wnpr We, like pollsters, also wait our caller um, our, our caller ladder. So women uh, get moved up on the ladder, uh, even if men have been waiting longer uh, because we haven't had a woman on the air all day. So here's Christine from Avon. What do you want to talk about, Christine? Uh, hey, I just wanted to share, uh, first of all, I had a conversation with my brother last night. He's a political scientist up in Kent. He's a naturalized Canadian. Um, and he's run polls in the past that have been very accurate for Canada, which is a little more complicated in the U.S., um, but he's quite confident that Biden's going to win. Um, he he said to me that he thought that it would be comparable to Obama in 2008. Uh, I said, well, I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> but he, he also said, I don't understand why you Americans are all worked up about this. I said, you don't understand. We've been prepped for something like this happening, you know, a version of Day of the Dead or, you know, the, it's all of these zombie movies and you know, just having to hunker down and get our AK-47 for the last 50 years. And that's, now I think people are just kind of spilling over the edge and you know, thinking they can make it a reality. So, it, you know, it's kind of PTSD or something from... 2016, I think, on the progressive side. But there you go. Well, yeah, first, we did a whole show about this, about how zombie movies and stuff like that have kind of infiltrated our political consciousness. So, yeah, I'm with you on that idea. Um, and and I'll, I'll just let you go here as we wrap up on that. The one thing I will say is, to your brother in Canada, we've never had in my memory uh, a cycle in which the president spent so much time trying to discredit the voting process itself uh, you know, starting a few months ago, President Trump has been attacking the validity of male voting on an average of four times a day in tweets and utterances. Uh, we've never had a situation where the president has openly said that he cannot guarantee that he will concede uh, if he loses the vote. So, you know, when you think about that, you think, yes, we are in terra incognita. There's a reason why we would be freaking out down here uh, in the States uh, as opposed to calm Canada, where there's more of a sense of everybody kind of believing in the same system. All right, let me grab uh, Alex in Enfield, simply because his name was briefly hijacked by Dan. Uh, Alex, oh, what's on your mind? So, hey, Colin. So I think it's good that we're preparing for the chance that Trump might not concede. Um, but and it's also really important that everyone votes, even if the election won't be close. But I'm calling because 
I think the media um, is covering this race like a horse race or making it seem like it's close. They do this every cycle. Um, in 2012, for example, they made it seem like it was going to be a close race, but Obama handily won the Electoral College, and Biden has had a consistent polling lead um, that is comparable to Bill Clinton's lead in 1996, and he won that race in a landslide. So my question to you is, what do you think about the media making it seem like every race is going to be close, covering it like a horse race, even when it isn't? Uh, thanks, and I'm a big fan of the show. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, I guess I would sort of look at it a different way, which is I think that we were overconfident in our understanding of the race in 2016. Uh, we thought we knew what was going to happen, and we were wrong. I mean, we were kind of overwhelmingly wrong. <laughs> so, you know, if, yes, you're absolutely, everything you said is true. I would add to that, that if the polling error were identical to what it was in 2016, in other words, if Trump's uh, polls were better and Biden's numbers were worse uh, than, in, than the error in a way that sort of mirrored the way the error was in 2016, Biden would still win. Uh, if there was the same kind of mistake being made, Biden still has a big enough margin uh, to win the election. But, you know, I just I think 2016 was meant to teach us a lesson uh, in overconfidence. And, and I, I really do feel like uh, I, I guess I could only really speak for myself. But as I look around, I think a lot of people are unwilling to to say what they really believe, which is, yes, it would take a very, very unusual set of circumstances uh, for for Trump to win in this election. On the other hand, we have an unusual set of circumstances. We have a pandemic, <laughs> which we haven't really had to deal with for a while. And we have this overwhelming uh, bunch of um, mail voting, early voting. Uh, I think uh, Alan might have said it's up to 100 million now. I mean, that, that's just like an incredible number. All right, here's a Helen in Middletown. Hi, Helen. Hi. I just wanted to correct something that you had said earlier about what is allowed to be worn at the polls. Mm-hmm. In this morning's Hartford Current, Denise Merrill um, absolutely articulated what could and could not be accepted. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, well, regardless of my, my position, slogans like Make America Great Again and Our Best Days Still Lie Ahead are acceptable. I'm, 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 reading, I'm reading from the Hartford Current itself. As are other political messages like Black Lives Matter and, Black, and Back the Blue. Right. On the other hand, anything with a candidate's name or likeness is prohibited. Right. So I, 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 you're, you're absolutely right. And I said that the wrong way. Although a MAGA hat typically, I think, has Trump's name on the back or somewhere. I don't think there are that many MAGA hats that don't mention Trump uh, somewhere. But yes, that's right. You can't wear a hat or a face mask or something that says Trump or Biden or anybody else who or Larson or, you know, anybody else who's running uh, as you go in there. Uh, but you, you can have slogans. I should have been clearer about that. It looks like I could get one more call on the air and let it be a Trump supporter. Uh, all right, here's Jeff in Bristol. Hi, Jeff. Good afternoon. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. You have a great show. Thank you. We do it every day. Thank so, you. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is um, after four years of this grievance, one thing after another, the leadership from the White House has brought this country to its knees. And now we're having this conversation. I mean, at, at an election, it's just it's beyond, you know, I, I can't even get my head around that. We're actually having this conversation, America, having this conversation. 
right now. And, just, I can't get my head around. Well, there's only, we got maybe only about a minute left, but say more. Why specifically? What can't you get your head around? I mean, you know, this is America. I mean, you know, when have we ever like gone at each other like this? You know, maybe towards an enemy. You know, if we had to fight a war, which I'm glad we don't or haven't. You know, other than what we're going through right now in Afghanistan. But I mean, we're Americans. How could we not come together, vote? You know, whoever wins, wins. Whoever loses, concedes. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Well, he says we'll have to wait and see. I mean, mm. you got to be kidding me. <laughs> well, yes, that's a great, you know, it's a great place to end. So, yes, um, you know, interestingly, I'm kind of a maniac about this. Um, but, um, but you know, the concession actually began with the invention of the telegraph. Uh, that's why William Jennings Bryan was able to concede to McKinley. I'm, I'm a big I'm fanatic about the fact that the telegraph changed American life more than we realized. But since then, yes. Everybody concedes. You know, I mean, uh, you know, Gore, of course, conceded twice. He conceded once, pulled it off the table, put it back on the table uh, at a time when he had unexpended options. He could have tried harder. So uh, he could have tried more. There were more days left to contest. So if we don't have a concession, um, that'll be really bad. (laughs) And I think we might not have a concession. Uh, All right. Uh, And who knows? Maybe Biden wouldn't concede either. Uh, Who knows where we are at this point? Okay. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. We'll be back tomorrow with our Election Day Citizen Observer Show.